we get ready to jump in and start our journey. I want to do something. I'm doing it for a couple of reasons. One is that I promise you I would have you out. There are lots of plans on this day, and I want to cooperate. I really do, and want to you know, get home myself, get in my chair, and get comfortable, and you know, eat what I'm going to eat, and watch Cap um, win, and you know, that's, that's today. So, uh, so I, I, I'm going I'm to read my sermon to you this morning. And it doesn't happen very often. In fact, it's very, very infrequent that I do this. So that'll keep me on task if I read it. But second of all, this is something that was really born in my heart back when I was doing my, um, my sabbatical. It started, started taking notes, started going back over the journey that was my life. How many of you do that? I, 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 I encouraged you a couple of weeks ago to to chart your life a little bit. I, I did a little bit of this, and, and, I've, I've, and it's amazing how many of these sort of coincid, coincidental uh, moments there were in my life where God just radically re-altered. And then there were those other long stretches where, where it seemed like not a lot was, was blasting, was going on, you know, but, but still as I look back, I realize how faithful God was as he was maneuvering and changing and redirecting and informing and, and drawing me along not only that I become something more reflective of him, but also as he moved me into the jobs that I would hold and, and the, the, the places I would be in the kingdom of heaven. And, and this isn't going to touch nearly all of that, but I want, to, I want to share this with you. It's basically my story, and I hope this doesn't frighten you. Um, I don't know that I've ever really done this before in, in the in the quantity, of hopefully quality, you're going to get here for a little while. But it will help you understand, I think, uh, in understanding where we are headed, what's happening with us and why we are who we are and, and why, why the expression that we, that we are uh, giving in, in, the, in the kingdom of heaven. And so... Um, your notes are not really notes, they're just kind of points as I go along. And uh, you can write down anything you want to. Challenge me later to find out if it was really true or if I just, you know, made it up. And uh, I hope there's nothing made up here. We'll just start with this scripture. This is my vineyard story. Matthew 13, parable of the hidden treasure. After the kingdom, after, excuse me, I can read. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. What is the kingdom of heaven like? Like treasure hidden in a field. Well, how valuable is that treasure? Well, which a man found and he hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one, a pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So Jesus is saying there is something that is worth giving everything else away. There is, there is something that is uh, worth investing your life in and giving everything maybe that you have earned and built to this point, there is something worth, worth turning it over, flipping it, in order that you might have what Jesus called the kingdom of heaven. Interestingly enough, Jesus used that term kingdom of heaven 
all the time, but he used it almost as substituted it for words like salvation. He used it for words like, for phrases like knowing the Lord. That, um, in fact, when you get into this Kingdom Come book, this, this is like a, a, a mini Kingdom 101. It's a wonderful book, and, and it's a great place for us to be starting in this. So, so you'll understand, I won't spend a lot of time because you're going to be doing some of that work yourself. And I do encourage you when you do get this and you start that you look up the references that are in here. You really need to follow through. Okay, so here I go. I'm reading. <clears throat> and you can laugh if you want when I get to those parts. Born, born into an evangelical family that was immersed in pastoral ministry, I was raised on Bible stories and attended church from my earliest days. I use the word immerse because we were Baptists. And immersion was the way we defined acceptance. Throughout my childhood, I was taught that the most important thing I could do was to love God. I learned to behave in a Christian manner, a task that was never far from being enforced since my parents lived it in front of and behind the scenes. I would later understand how fortunate I was to be raised in a home where my parents practiced what they preached. They believed that God was a loving God. At times, however, I deduced from sermons and from preacher talk that he could become angry, and I had reason to believe that I could become the object of some of that. I learned to keep my head down. Nevertheless, my folks honored God, and they taught us to do the same. As I was growing up and really not aware of it, I was being indoctrinated in evangelical Calvinistic theology and practice. I was also learning to be proud of it even though I had no clue that others had different but viable interpretations of Scripture and practice. It wasn't that my parents had deep religious bigotry, but it was obvious that our way was superior primarily because we wouldn't be Baptists if it weren't. We were Southern Baptists, so we were pretty sure that we were the direct descendants and inheritors of the benefits of the cross, the real heirs of God's good provision, and everyone else was probably eating table scraps. As Baptists, we were presented a deep respect for the Word of God, understood the process and need for salvation, and had a high value for local church involvement. Becoming a soul winner was a primary objective of every person in the pew. Telling someone about Jesus and leading them to the Lord was the highest privilege and obligation of everyone who attended church. Will there be any stars in my crown? was an often sung reinforcing hymn that helped us know that saving souls was our ultimate purpose and stars in our crowns were the people we had introduced to Jesus. Not to have led anyone to the throne of grace was huge failure. These were seriously good things to know. We also supported explanations as to why we saw very few supernatural answers to our prayer. God no longer did miracles. He was still capable. He just had other things to do. We blessed a lot of doctors when we prayed for the sick, but rarely saw anything startling or unexplainable. That was for then, this is for now. Faith healers, as they were called, were doing the work of the devil, and we would have none of that. Besides, as heirs of the truth, if God was still healing, he certainly would be using us to do it. We also thought God had finished speaking to the world in any fresh way. At least, he didn't speak very often. His Bible was complete, the inspired Word of God, and he had little else to say. Our job was to believe it, stay Baptist, witness, and wait for the rapture. 
an event that we were sure was happening before we had to suffer in any lengthy or inconvenient tribulation. We hated communism, didn't imbibe, and sent missionaries all over the world to stop others from imbibing, and had only a minor realization that God was up to something. Fortunately, we never lost sight of the new birth. In spite of always being right, by the time I was a teenager, I was tired of Christianity, at least the version I knew. I had also grown very curious about what was happening in the big evil world that I had been told to avoid. Sometimes it seemed that my friends on the outside had more going for them, uh, going for them than we did in the church. The church also felt dreadfully out of touch with the upheaval of the 60s, and even though I still respected church, I began wondering if we weren't part of the reason that America's youth were rebelling. I had no idea how to reconcile those two polar opposite attitudes in my life. The world had developed a very seductive pull. If nothing else, the people in the world seemed to be having more fun than I was. And after a while, I decided to quietly join them. So I played church while at church, and then I did the world thing fairly effectively the rest of the time. It's hard to keep those worlds separate when you live in the pastor's home and have to bring your friends into that environment. Occasionally, I would also have to accompany my parents because of school or social functions into the other world that I inhabited. Keeping it from colliding while living in a small town was near impossible, but I was an adequate actor and a pretty good liar. Graduating from high school provided a major break for me, uh, not because I was off to, to find the cure for cancer or to lead the charge to stomp out world hunger, but because I no longer had to work so hard to keep my duplicitous life from coming apart. I took off for the University of Nevada, Reno, happily deciding to expunge myself of the church, except when I visited my parents on a weekend, and I wholeheartedly embraced my more worldly endeavors. I wasn't very proficient at it. Even though I was blurry when it came to understanding God, my parents had installed a conscience in me, and like Jiminy Cricket, it kept talking to me even when I repeatedly told it to shut up. Don't give up, family, folks, parents. To complicate things, the late 60s and the early 70s were becoming increasingly chaotic. Huge cultural shifts that challenged morality and traditional values were sweeping the world. The Vietnam War was blazing, and I held a draft card with the iffy lottery number of 124. Minority groups were beginning to demand that they be treated as though they really, there really was liberty for all. Music, clothing, hairstyle, drugs, and entertainment were all reflecting massive adjustments. Nothing seemed to be making sense, and the late-night discussions I had with my friends, dialogues that were filled with the grandiose judgments and the mock fatalism of baby boomer youth, our solutions were never more than thinly-veiled justifications to keep us doing what we really wanted to do anyway. How many of you remember? <laughs> okay. By the end of my first semester in college, I was in academic freefall and realizing that the world was not delivering on its promises, but then neither was the church. The world was every bit as confused and as barren as the re religious world that I left. That realization found me confused and barren as well. Even though I had, always, had also observed that sometimes the world was thinking more progressively and acting more compassionately than the church, Few from either universe offered workable 
solutions. And life remained complicated as I found that I still believed that God loved me and probably had some plan up his sleeve. So I arrived at the horns of a dilemma. The world thing was not working very well and what I knew about God, which in my mind was attached to religion and church, was not that appealing either. Even in my discouragement and to my own surprise, I found myself with a growing curiosity about Jesus. The church had lost me, at least for the moment, but Jesus was growing very attractive. In the midst of this, I'd begun hearing that God was doing something remarkable with hippies in Southern California. People in the counterculture were getting saved and baptized in the ocean. Jesus' people, as they were called, were beginning their own churches and descending on old ones. And of all things, I had also heard that God was doing something among Catholics. It was rumored that some of them were even speaking in tongues, something that Baptists were staunchly against. Although I accepted this assessment of tongues, I found it ironic that Catholics were having more interaction with the Holy Spirit than I was. It's a Baptist prejudice. As I was beginning to investigate this phenomenon, a book fell into my hands, The Cross and the Switchblade. It was the true story of a young pastor named David Wilkerson who began preaching to gang members in the mean streets of New York City. Pastor Wilkerson <clears throat> saw many of them come to Christ. Changes in their lives were so dramatic that through his ministry, young men and women were delivered from drug abuse, sexual bondages, and lives of ultimate misery. One sentence in the book, and only one, mentioned that young gang members were being intensely impacted by the Holy Spirit and that they spoke in tongues. The sentence appeared almost as an afterthought, but it exploded in my head. I found myself arguing with what I read. Obviously, if the book was true, God was working miraculously in our day. The tongues thing was a major hang-up for me, however, and for another year, I battled my feelings and what I knew about God. I began to pour over my Bible. I couldn't put it down. It had become a new book to me, and I was beginning to see things I had never seen before nor, nor ever heard preached. I began to resonate with the possibility of a fresh encounter with God. By my second year in college, I knew I wanted to follow Jesus. I just didn't know how. During that year, I found myself homeless for a while. And when I did find a place to live, I was isolated from my friends and family. God finally had me to himself, and it was a difficult and a wonderful time. My grades were out of the dumpster. I had nothing else to do but schoolwork. My attitude was much improved, and my hunger for God was driving me into his domain. I was lonely, but my confusion was clearing up. By the end of my sophomore year in 1971, I had decided that my problem appeared, appeared that I was not filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Bible said that I needed to be. I didn't really know what that meant. The tongues thing was still linked in my head to the experience of being filled, and I was still opposed to that, but I had come a long way in accepting that I was powerless to change anything in my life. I returned from Reno to begin a summer of working in an Anaconda copper mine outside of Yarrington. It was a summer that changed my life. My younger sister, Jeannie, 
had been attending California Baptist College in Riverside, and when she returned home for the summer, the two of us discovered that we had been on the same pilgrimage and reached the, this, uh, had reached similar conclusions. Even though Jeannie was in a Christian environment, she was looking for more in her life too. She had concluded that she needed to give the Holy Spirit a more active, uh, more active role. Together, we talked about what we had learned and began trying to find out what it meant to be filled with the Holy Spirit, like Paul had written to the Ephesian church. Into our lives came a young, single Assemblies of God. The single part meant more to my sister at the time, but never mind that. Into our lives came a young, single Assemblies of God pastor who spent more time at my parents' home than he did in his own. We liked him a lot. And in our private conversations, when he was not around, we determined that he was such a level-headed guy that Charlie couldn't possibly believe in healing, nor did he speak in tongues. We were wrong. Also, God drew a couple from California and an ex-pro baseball player into our lives, all of whom knew a lot more about the Holy Spirit than we did. They were the people who would help us through our summer of transformation. By July... I was ready to let God do whatever he wanted. I even gave him permission to make me speak in tongues if that was the only way it would happen. One evening, Jeannie and I found our, ourselves having tacos at the McEachran's home. That was the young couple who had moved to Yarrington from California. They nervously began talking to us about something they call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They had no idea how ready we were to have an inter any interface with the Spirit, no matter what they called it. As they sheepishly asked if we would like to have prayer, both of us were already on our knees, and something dynamic was happening. For me, it wasn't a tremendously emotional experience. Mostly, I felt great relief. I did speak in tongues that night, but it was not the rush I had imagined it would be. It was kind of matter-of-fact and not the point at all. My sister had a more deeply emotional encounter. For both of us, it was a redirection of our lives. My understanding of what happened that night has grown over the years, but at the time, I felt a tremendous peace, as though everything was being put right. I've come to understand that I had lived with the Holy Spirit's presence my entire life. He had directed, protected, and cared for me from my earliest days. That night, however, he got loose. It wasn't something that fell from that uh, something new that fell on me from heaven, but it was someone who had always been there who finally was allowed to take the steering wheel of my life. Although it didn't mean much to me, I was soon classified as a charismatic, the label used for a person from a conservative church who had embraced the gifts of the Holy Spirit, much like the traditional Pentecostals. I didn't care what I was being called. Having the Holy Spirit free to move in my life was huge. Over the next few weeks and months, my excitement grew. I had been helping with the youth of our church, but now I was on fire. Jeff McCachran, the man who'd prayed for me, along with a Catholic charismatic man named Bob Anderson, and, and myself opened a coffee house, and we began sharing our faith with the youth of our town. Kids from all backgrounds began coming to our Bible studies and worship times, and they began meeting Jesus. I became the sole director of the Alpha House, as it was called, and it became my training ground. I also began traveling with Albie Pearson, the ex-angel center fielder who was doing youth evangelism, and I began leading worship for a man named Dick Patterson, who was a wonderful Bible teacher and exhorter. Not long after my sister and, and I 
My father also came into an experience with the Holy Spirit under the care of the Young Assemblies of God pastor, and it completely redirected him. All the years of loving and studying Scripture began opening insights well beyond his previous experiences. Almost the entire First Baptist Church of Yarrington fell under the spell of a loving God who shared himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and things were never the same. A few didn't come along, but most people happily jumped in. In the church, we began learning about praying for the sick, discovering that there were still demonic forces around and that God spoke freshly and freely in this day and age. We began to experience worship in a whole new way. We began to believe that there was forward motion for the church and that we were not just destined to hold the ground that we had managed to previously take. We also learned that not everyone was thrilled with our new experiences as we were. Our denomination began applying pressure. We no longer looked like them and had become an embarrassment, and rightfully so. They wanted, us to go down, they wanted us to go down the road, but we had become very good givers, so thus creating a conflict for them. People in Yarrington told absurd stories about us which circulated through town and made us look a little more peculiar than we really were. A few of our own members became hyper-spiritual and tried to move us towards bizarre manifestations. Strange practices and extra-biblical teaching rolled around the church. Teachers from outside, both good and bad, found their way to us and left deposits that would remain for years. Not, one, not only, excuse me, we not only survived it all, we began to thrive in the midst of it. When you love Jesus as your bottom line and trust the Word of God, you can get through anything. The church eventually found its footing and began a remarkable journey that blessed the town, the region, and finally, the whole world. That church has sent missionaries around the world. The first 10 years, while we remained Baptists, we, we uh, excuse me, the first 10 years while we re remained Baptists were both heady, ex a heady experience and a taxing time. We were very fortunate to see people saved and healed and set free. I discovered early that I often got extraordinary answers to prayer. When I prayed for a child with splayed feet who was facing a string of surgeries and a series, a series of calf, casts to straighten them, God did the job for him. I prayed for a young lady with an inadequate musculature and saw God create muscles where they had never been. I saw God straighten backs and heal tumors, open blind eyes, and heal deafness, and I began to believe I might be a budding Oral Roberts. I wasn't. God had a different paradigm for me. I also began leading worship, and that helped keep me sane. Before this, leading worship was a cheerleader's job. Get the crowd worked up, slow them down into an emotional stupor, and turn them over to the preacher for further indoctrination. I began to discover that praise was a great connector between God's people and the Father's throne. It did have an emotional component, but that was meant to be a byproduct and not the product itself. It was hard to find music that actually helped with that, but I began singing scripture and simple choruses and learned uh, any piece of music that, that drew God's presence into the moment. It was a revolution in my thinking. My hunger for God's word had also matured. Jesus' story became a huge source of change and encouragement. The miracles he, he did made sense, and I didn't have to explain them away. 
The words were full of grace, and they still applied. I did notice that Jesus spoke constantly about the kingdom of God. I asked my mentors and teachers about that, but no one offered satisfying explanations. To me, the mention of the kingdom was so frequent in Scripture, yet so under-addressed in sermons and teaching, that I knew there must be a mystery here that I would have to investigate. I really didn't know how, and it would take some time before it began giving up its secrets, but the time would come. In 1973, I married my high school sweetheart. Once Linda got over her commitment issues, and decided that I was the one. <laughs> yeah, that's the funny part. <laughs> and decided that I was the one. <laughs> we, Lynn has a little different version of the story, but you know, it's like, <laughs> I'm the one reading here. Um, we started our lives together. She added a new level of credibility that I had not enjoyed before. I finished college, began working part-time at the church, full-time at the school. I also often held the third job and continued ministering to youth and leading worship. It was becoming increasingly clear that I was being drawn into ministry life, still wanting to avoid pastoring, but continuing to do it. I devoured Christian literature. Some of it was good, some not so good, but I was hungry for answers. The hunger led me to some things that were downright unhealthy. But because I was grounded, and I think the Southern Baptist and my dad for that, I would finally shake it off and move on. I also began to try to do a better job at caring for people. I instinctively knew that they were the real reason God called some to be shepherds. The charismatic movement had picked up steam and was beginning to generate fresh produce for the church. Music became livelier. Creative Bible exhortation became popular again. And people from different backgrounds began to intermingle and connect. No denomination nor common theology developed out of the new experiences of the church, as many had, pre- had predicted it, that it would. Dynamic Bible teaching returned for the hungry, but could at times be narrow and, in, and inapplicable, or, as I saw firsthand, became a way to control people. Speakers from the Pentecostal world became the teachers for the charismatic movement, but most of those involved in the charismatic movement did not join the Pentecostal churches. New books, TV programs, and a flood of cassette tapes for Bible teaching were passed around with no filters. The whole thing became increasingly untidy. It was still fun, but getting unruly. The weaknesses in the charismatic movement also began to surface. Experience became everything. In fact, if a manifestation was strong enough, many accepted it at face value, never questioning its source nor measuring its real effect on people. Theology could be sketchy and was often developed out of, and was developed out of experience rather than from sound Bible study. Character issues were overlooked when giftedness was evident. The more gifted a minister, the less likely he or she was to be held to any accountability. The countryside was filled with self-appointed prophets and teachers, all claiming to have special unction from God and answering to no one. Huge healing ministries sprang up, and people traveled miles to receive or just see a miracle, and it all began to bother me. Before long, 
I discovered that staying at home and pulling all the four walls of our valley in around me for protection was easier than trying to battle the onslaught of questionable teaching and practices emerging within the unrestrained existence of many charismatics. People's claim to liberty at all cost was killing me and was confusing the church. In 1978, my son was born, and soon after, my father had a stroke. I was serving as the associate pastor by that time, working full-time with the Paiute tribe within the local high school. I found myself in charge of the church while Dad was re recovering. I would run from school to spend a few minutes with my wife and child and then take off to the church, getting home just in time to put Matt to bed. It was obvious I was going to have to make some serious decisions. When Linda had discovered that she was pregnant, we decided that she would no longer teach. When she quit, it cut our income in half. It was almost exactly in half. It was a stretching time, but God met every one of our needs. The new responsibilities pushed me to make a decision. Was I called to ministry or not? I approached the board and told them I thought I was supposed to, be, to begin full-time at the church. I was already putting in 30 to 40 hours a week into the fellowship. I'm not sure what I meant by full-time. Would they be willing to pick up the rest of my salary? And they said yes, I, and I quit my other jobs. It was tight. I did substitute teach, as did Linda, and I gave guitar lessons, but I was determined to live on what God provided, and by His grace, we got through. The more I realized the big responsibilities that had become mine, the more apparent it became that what I taught and what we experienced had to be true and had to really work. The Holy Spirit could no longer be recreational. Get me? We, what we did and believed also had to fit the template of Scripture. I needed better explanations and better models to get the job done. I would be lying if I said I had not become gun-shy and a bit cynical. It is fearful to finally own your calling and actually begin to see it come to pass. The implications were that the, comp that the consequences would come to pass as well. The view from the pulpit gave me a deep appreciation for the changes that my dad had overseen and pastored in our old earliest days with the Holy Spirit. In 1981, the Southern Baptists made it plain that we no longer fit into their vision of the future. In a meeting that still makes, my, makes me scratch my head, we were invited to leave the fold. My dad referred to it as the left foot of fellowship. We were on our own, and for all practical purposes, I was in charge. For another 10 years, we moved through the world with only loose affiliations. The flood of charismatic teaching and practice had begun to solidify around the Word of Faith movements and the prosperity teachings. It took a while to realize it, but I was seriously looking for a place to belong, and that was not it. I was a bit insecure and uncertain of what came next. Our experiences with the Holy Spirit had been very real, but I had only a weak explanation for why it had happened like it did. I knew that my fuzzy notions of unpredictable anointings or finely honed gifts or weirdly powerful prayers were inadequate and a little insulting to God. In my search and insecurities, I had made some significant friendships with, and people, with people that I trusted. While we could have remained isolated, I realized that we were vulnerable being on our own, and I began questioning others about their churches and rightful authority. I was looking for my tribe. 
One of these friends, a man named Wendell Burton, was a Christian songwriter and performer who first told me about the vineyard. At the time, the vineyard was almost a one-church affair. Oops, lost my place. After his salvation, Wendell had become a student in the very first discipleship training program that was offered by this church called the Anaheim Vineyard. The experience had redirected Wendell's life, and he had deeply benefited from the teaching. He had taught me a song, Isn't He Wonderful? <clears throat> Isn't He Wonderful? Wonderful, isn't he? Prince of Peace, Son of God, isn't he? And he told me that the pastor of the church, a guy named John Wimber, had written it. The song hung in my brain, and we began to sing it. It was a good introduction. At first, I didn't investigate the church itself, but I liked the song. I would come to love the movement it had come from. Eventually, the vineyard would come into national awareness. The one church became a small association of churches, mostly in Southern California. John Wimber had emerged as the leader. He had also earlier uh, been founding director of the Department of Church Growth, teaching at Fuller Theological Seminary, a conservative evangelical school in Pasadena, California. John was in an interesting mix of people. He had been saved out of a rock and roll lifestyle, a musician and a band manager of note who had helped create the Righteous Brothers. He'd pastored and helped grow the largest Quaker church in America. He had also he had become a respected seminary professor and church expert. And in the midst of this, he had begun to experience the Holy Spirit in some dynamic ways. His theology remained fundamentally evangelical, but his understanding of the Holy Spirit's role in the church was through the eyes of the kingdom of God. That story, by the way, is given um, quickly in, in this little book. And finally, he was drawing attention from both the evangelical and the charismatic worlds. John developed a missions class at Fuller Seminary called MC 510 called Signs and Wonders and Church Growth. In John's study of how churches grew, he had noticed that the largest growth rates in the third world were among churches that regularly saw the miraculous occur. He had come to accept that God still performed miracles, and he'd begun to teach and experience healing in the group that he was pastoring. He thought that combining signs and wonders with a class for prospective missionaries would be a valuable thing. The class exploded. It was wildly popular because John not only gave them a theology, he taught them how to administer the miraculous. It was hands-on. Students in the class began to pray for and receive healing. Evangelicals were operating in the gifts of the Spirit that had previously been the exclusive property of Pentecostals and Charismatics. Those groups were dumbfounded. So were the evangelicals. The class became, so, became wildly popular, and after three years, Fuller shut it down. Word of MC 510 got out. It messed with the Pentecostals because they saw the gifts of the Spirit as a result they saw the gifts of the Spirit as the result of the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and these people didn't acknowledge that. It messed with evangelicals because these students were not claiming a special experience, but were doing the works of the New Testament anyway. It messed with the charismatics because Wimber had a clear theology. 
An article was published in Charisma magazine that attempted to pull Wimber into the spirit-filled party. The evangelicals who embraced the teaching of the class started calling themselves the third wave. That is, not evangelical, not Pentecostals, but evangelicals who believed that the Holy Spirit was still at work. What became apparent was that John Wimber, in his own search, had begun to offer a clear explanation of the work of the Holy Spirit. Instead of building his theology from experience or accepting a theology that had no application in it, he had studied the Bible and become convinced that nothing had changed. He saw healing in Scripture and began studying and teaching it even before he ever witnessed it. He was convinced it was true, and so he began praying for the sick. It took a long time, but the day finally came when someone was undeniably healed as a result of his prayer. Soon after, healing began to happen regularly around him and in his church and other places where he ministered. Sometimes the healings were startling. Instead of forming long prayer lines and holding typical healing services where he would demonstrate his gift and touch a few, he taught his whole church how to pray for the sick and let them do the work. It was unprecedented and very thought-provoking. John's ministry had developed out of his theology and not the other way around. He was convinced that healing was a part of the kingdom of heaven, just like Jesus had said that it was. If that was true, then the kingdom of heaven was still with us, and, excuse me, and from it, Jesus was still healing. The prophetic was alive and well, and freedom from the devil was fully available. Instead of explaining the moving of the Holy Spirit in terms of raw power and anointing, Wimber began to teach it as, as the normal outcome in any place and in any life where Jesus was allowed to become king. Not only did kingdom theology explain the miraculous, John also saw it as the force for mercy to the poor, a call to the sacrificial service, and justice to the downtrodden. Wherever Jesus was king, the kingdom of God began to express itself like Jesus had in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. More churches joined the vineyard, and a movement was forming that was building around a theology rather than an experience. That wasn't immediately apparent to many who saw the vineyard as the first real charismatic denomination. That pigeonholing did not last long. This was not that. This was a church beginning to equip itself to do the work of the ministry. People from all walks of life began to learn that they were citizens of a country that radically altered people's lives and where Jesus was king. Sometime in, uh, sometime in 1981, I was invited to a church planting seminar at the Anaheim Vineyard. The MC 510 was not yet a reality. But the Anaheim Vineyard was an interesting mix of the supernatural and the natural. For three days, I sat and listened to, a very, pract uh, to very practical information of how to begin, grow, and equip a church. It wasn't very stimulating for me, but during it, I had an accidental conver conversation with a large bearded man who was extraordinarily kind to me. He asked me questions and encouraged me, to, uh, never, uh, and encouraged me and never once mentioned that he was John Wimber. I only discovered that, that when his name was called over the loudspeaker and he excused himself from our conversation to go speak. 
I was impressed with his humility and his openness. I casually followed the vineyard for the next few years, attending a few seminars, listening to teaching tapes, and reading their literature. It would be around the time that MC 510 hit the news that vineyard began to loom large in my thinking. I had begun to consider joining the movement, but I was still a bit wounded from past associations. I did not understand the vineyard's theology yet. Not long after the MC 510 broke and had finally settled back down, the vineyard joined forces with a group of prophets from Kansas City. While attending one of the vineyard, vineyard's meetings, I saw the effects of what had been a kingdom movement. I didn't have the language for that yet, but it was becoming a one-trick pony. The prophetic was all that was talked about. Even Wimber seemed to be caught up in the excitement of giving people words and directing spiritual traffic through the words of knowledge. I was put off and I had no idea why. I was suddenly disturbed by the thought of becoming a vineyard pastor. A year later, I was ministering in Ecuador and was preaching in town squares. Somewhere, so, excuse me, somehow, a vineyard pastor from Southern California had found us. Bob Oliver was quick to jump in as we preached and prayed for the sick. The second night, we had a huge crowd. Bob and I tag-teamed, seeing tremendous response among the people of the city. It was the New Testament come alive. People gave their lives to Jesus. People brought and burned their witchcraft paraphernalia. Someone brought a badly demonized man who had been chained to his bed, and the man was set free. A woman who had never been able to speak began shouting and praising God. Bob and I became friends. I soon discovered that he was on the national board of the vineyard and he encouraged me to attend an upcoming pastor's meeting. I was a little reluctant, but because we were friends, I attended. At the meeting, John Wimber stood up and asked for forgiveness. He admitted that he had let, he had let the prophetic influences take over and declared that the vineyard was not and never would be a prophetic movement. The vineyard was a movement that knew, about, knew how to prophesy. The difference was everything. The vineyard would hang the prophetic gift on its belt and all the rest of their, with all the rest of their gifts and get on with the business at hand. The vineyard was a kingdom movement that planted kingdom churches. From the crowd listening that day came a mixture of relief and indignation. Those who wanted it to be a prophetic movement and nothing else would soon leave. Others like me wanted in. Before I left the building, I found Bob Oliver and asked how to become a part. Within a few months, we had completed the necessary paperwork and interviews, and interviews. And on New, York, uh, New Year's Day, 1991, the First Baptist Church of Yarrington became Yarrington Vineyard Fellowship, and I became a vineyard pastor. <clears throat> I truthfully did not understand all the theology or all the inner workings of the vineyard movement, but I saw honesty and a real desire to have a a real desire to have God's people adequately equipped to be ministers on the earth. No gift was supreme. No person to be given undue credit. No individual qualified from, dis, excuse me, no individual disqualified for ministry if they continued to walk uprightly. And no grandstanding was allowed. I knew that Wimber and the vineyard had tapped into something and had freely given it away to anyone who had a hunger to see God move on the earth. I was home. It would be some years before I fully realized the gift that I had been given. The vineyard has grown and refined its theology and practice. 
And although it has been through many changes, it is still a kingdom movement and it still ministers out of the king's treasure house. The now and not yet, that is, the kingdom that exists in eternity is still breaking through in our lives to allow the works of the Holy Spirit, both natural and supernatural, become the norm for the believer. We are again being asked to step forward and make a contribution to the body of Christ, a solid interpretation of the kingdom of heaven that actually manifests in transformed lives. This is my vineyard story. The kingdom is like a treasure in a field and a pearl of great price. It is worth selling everything to own it. The kingdom of God describes the place that we were created to live and function in, and it is the focus for the next couple of months. In reality, the kingdom of God will always be the focus of this church. Over the years, my relationship with the vineyard has solidified around a theology that allows God to move and allows me to participate. Jesus is the center. And if we allow him to remain there, he will begin to push his people into the world to become light and life for any who are in darkness and who hunger for truth. That is who we are. The question we get to ask every working day, every Sunday service, after every act of kindness, after every worship se session, and every time we pray is, today, did the kingdom move forward? If we can answer yes to that on a regular basis, we will be seeing the works of Jesus as the new normal for our lives and church. And we invite you to join in the adventure. If we could have our worship team come back. So we finish. If you have any questions about that, I'll be free to ask any or answer any question that you've got. It happened pretty much, I left a lot out. <clears throat> a few generalities, but I tried to be as specific as I could and still keep it in my time frame and for you. But we really do have a bottom line. There's a place that we go for our, uh, for our information and for our experience and it all eventually leads back to a king who is establishing his life and his reign in people the kingdom of heaven has, has come near to you Jesus would say he would say the kingdom of heaven is within you he would say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is nigh. He would, he would say again and again, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he would invite you in to become a participant. The language seems a little bit confusing. It's, not, it's maybe just because you've not heard it outside of here or a few other places, though interestingly enough right now, in many, many places, people are pursuing this thinking of, of of this coming and once again the vineyard really is being sought because we've been here a long time seeing it applied and work and and wrestle with it and so we're coming in the next couple of, of months this is what we're going to be doing just talking about the kingdom of heaven as it applies to us we're we're in the vineyard we're part of of that world that's where we're affiliated it's where we serve that's that's what we look like 
But our gauge is, is not to make you better vineyardites. Our challenge is to see that you begin to walk in the kingdom of heaven yourself. This is the world we've been invited into. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit informing and directing and empowering us. At a moment in time, when I'm here to tell you, I think the world needs to see something authentic and real. You can't fake authentic for very long. So God's drawing us and calling us forward. Let's stand as we worship, and then as we worship, we'll close this down and let you go. We will be taking the offering. Thank you. We do want to pray, too. You, many of you know that uh, the little Espinosa baby was born pr very prematurely, but doing well. We got word this morning that he's got an infection in, in his blood, and we need to pray for him as we bring this to a close. He's a little guy born 2.6 pounds he's been doing pretty well but we want to make sure appreciate you helping out Logan um, we want to make sure that we pray at the end for him and also pray as we just take this journey through some of our roots but but also looking directly ahead at where we are headed and uh and just pray for me and pray for leadership as we, as we go. But let's worship. <clears throat> Love that song, 10,000 Reasons. If you start to count, there's probably a few more than that. There's a lot of reasons to serve Jesus. Most of us come to know him just simply because we're desperate. A sense of lostness, a sense of our lives being out of control has overwhelmed us and we find this promise of a haven, a port where there's peace and we grasp hoping that it's true and then we find out in reality it is. He forgives my sins, He, he changes my past because he totally redirects my future. And the outcome that it looked like it was going to be becomes something totally different because he takes over in my life. And once that initial moment has come where I re I've received Jesus as the answer, as, as my Savior, then I begin to discover a whole new world begins to open that this is why I was really here all along. And it answers questions I didn't even think to ask. And the reality of the presence of God in my life starts to become not only startling, but it becomes, but it becomes life changing. And then I get used to it and then I kind of settle back down into what really has been the most miraculous thing that has ever happened to me. And I start to take it for granted. Maybe something's come along that's, that's got you jump-started again and you've been taught, you've been encouraged, you've been discipled and, and you've, you've been brought along but, but you still suspect that back in, in, the, in the depths of your, your heart and life that this really still isn't everything God had promised. Well, you're being invited in. You're being invited in right now. You're being invited in to be a, 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 a partaker as well as a contributor. You're, you're being invited in to be 
filled again with the Holy Spirit. You're being invited in to become a source of hope for other people. You're being invited in as one who can learn. If you don't know how, you can learn how to walk in the kingdom of heaven. You can learn to lead somebody to Jesus. You can learn to be a mentor to someone who's becoming a disciple. You can learn to pray for the sick. You can learn to set people free whose lives have been in deep demonic bondage. You can learn to be generous. You can learn to worship. And, and this whole world opens up that is a reflection of how you're going to spend eternity. Wouldn't it be wonderful to start eternity now? Wouldn't it be wonderful to actually give myself to the now and not yet the kingdom of heaven as Jesus directs it in my life? As we close this down, I'm going to pray. If you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, if you need to be impacted in your life, if you are re-upping and saying, I, I want to I wanna be this. I, I, I don't want my life to be mundane. When Jesus is on board, there's no reason for me not to be lit up and serving in dynamic ways in the body of Christ and out here in a world that would sure love and needs to see Jesus all over again. So you can come and get prayer. And when I finish, we'll sing that chorus again, if you wouldn't mind. I love this song. We'll sing it, and then if you have a need, we want you to come. And I'll pray in closing here for this baby Aaron. It's his name. Please keep him in prayer and pray for this family, the Espinosas. Father, we are so thankful that when you saw how we treated what you created, that you didn't just walk off and leave us on our own. The Lord, you brought the best solution that eternity could ever offer in the life of Jesus. He came, God and man, lived among us, taught us what God looked like and what he expected, and then released it to us. He, he gave it away. And Lord, we have become these these sometimes even reluctant beneficiaries of, of the eternal presence of the living Word. And Lord, we want, really, really do want to learn how to walk in that. Lord, we are the ones who have made this less than exciting, less than potent. Lord, we're the ones who have not moved the kingdom forward today. But today, Father, in each of our lives, Lord, I'm just speaking. I, I want to move the kingdom ahead. My past and how you brought me to the place I finally did, Lord, I'm so appreciative. I, I, I am so grateful for my foundations. Bless the Baptist, bless the Southern Baptist, Father, and keep them true to the new birth. Bless my charismatic brethren who taught me that the Holy Spirit was moving and alive and active in people's lives. Bless those churches in this community, Lord. Give them what they need. We are inheritors, Lord, of their, of their blessing. And Father, I thank you for the vineyard, the place I found my home, that helped put, me all, put all those worlds together for me and begin to explain them. And Lord, and begin to invite me to participate at a whole new level.
I'm grateful for it. But Lord, all of us, however we got here, move us forward. Move us ahead, Lord. Don't let us stay where we are. God, we pray for little Aaron. We pray, Lord, for quick healing. Whatever's happened, however, Father, it's infection, Lord, and that, that he's had to go back on an IV. Lord, in Jesus' name, we've already spoken preservation for his life. But, Lord, now we speak a healing, a complete healing. Lord, the for, not only the formation of his lung, but, Father, just the destruction of whatever has gotten into his blood. Lord, that you heal him. Bless Desiree, Father, as a, as a mother, Lord, and Julio. Father, we just pray that their confidence is never shaken, that it remains firm in you. As we send the word from the family that loves them, we're so anxious to have them back, Lord, from this ordeal, Lord, and to have little Aaron here with us. Lord, bless them and heal them in Jesus' name. And Father, bless us as a people as we begin this new adventure here, Father, of just finding out where we've been and who we are and where we're headed. For a lot of us, Lord, it's old information, but I pray you make it fresh. Lord, you just make it alive for us. And for any who may be taking the journey for the first time, Lord, I pray that they find themselves, uh, they find themselves absolutely set on fire by the promises of your word and the promise of your presence. We bless you, Lord, and we thank you for mercies beyond beyond counting, Lord, in Jesus' name.